Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy these studies from the book of Isaiah, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the support tab at BethEmmanuel.org. We're going to start in Isaiah 1. Because remember when we started the class a couple of weeks ago, we started where? In Isaiah 6. Because Isaiah 6 comes before Isaiah 1. Not in your Bible, but chronologically in the story of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is the commissioning of Isaiah. Or as Isaiah 1 kind of lays out, well, it's like the theme of the book. In fact, the first five chapters of Isaiah could be considered to be Isaiah's major themes. And then we get into the narrative, sort of, with Isaiah 6. Anyway, we learned all that. So tonight we're going to start with Isaiah 1. We're going to go through the whole first chapter. Then we're going to skip up to Isaiah 10. Here we go. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we already learned this material uh, regarding these kings and their day and age, the life and times of Uzziah, of Jotham, of Ahaz, of Hezekiah, and the political interests and that sort of thing that were going on. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. This is an invocation of witnesses as if in a court of law. We have a classic courtroom type scene here in the gates of the city, as it were. Bringing, God is bringing a lawsuit against his people. It says, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. What's he talking about here? He's speaking about uh, the people, the nation, the land of Israel, the land of Judah, uh, who have, have suffered these blows, these injuries from foreign powers. And from, uh, from neighbors, from restless neighbors like the Philistines and the Syrians. And he's saying, he's, it's as if he's picturing the whole of the people of Israel as a person who's just beaten, has, the, has had the tar beaten them out of him, you know, he's all covered with bruises and welts. And he's saying, saying oh, we, you know, Hashem's, you're still sinning. You, you don't learn. You don't learn. You're still out, out, walking in these sinful ways. Hashem's going to whack you again, but there's, like, there's no place left to hit you anymore because you're so covered with bruises. We'll come back to this in, in the future when we get to Isaiah 53, but this is the, this, this picture of this suffering person this, that, that, that you know, stands for the whole nation is at the root of the prophecy in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. It goes on. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. 
It's a desolation as overthrown by strangers, the daughter of Zion. And now we're talking about Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. Okay, we're in verse 8, where it says, the daughter of Zion, and this is Jerusalem now, we're speaking now about Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Well, the first two are uh, similes. The third simile is literal. Uh, it's kind of an interesting rhetorical device there. You know, uh, I'm try- let, let me think if I can. Uh, no, I can't think of anything uh, that is to do the same thing. But uh, I, that's an interesting rhetorical device to be waxing poetic, waxing poetic, literally saying it, bang. So, again, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. What I mean is like a besieged city. It's just like it just comes out and says it. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So why is he calling why is he calling the people of Judah and Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, this is actually right in the Torah. If we were to go and look it up, uh, I think I have it right here on your sheet. It says I in um, no, I don't have it here, but you could go and look it up in Deuteronomy 29, uh, verse 23, where Hashem says that after Israel has been smitten by all of the curses that he lifts out in chapter 28, he says the people going by will say, you know, what what happened? What did this people do? What became of this land? What became of this people? It's like Sodom. It's like Gomorrah. In other words, utterly devastated. And the writer of the book of Revelation picks up that image, you know, in, in Revelation, uh, and he, he's, he uses that image to refer to, to Jerusalem as as the city that's cryptically called Sodom. It says, uh, verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. You see the wordplay there. If you repent, you'll eat the best. If you don't, you'll be eaten by the sword. Now, 
This class is called Isaiah in the New Testament, and the passage that I just read, you won't find it anywhere in the New Testament. This passage about wash yourselves, that starts with wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. But this first chapter of Isaiah is in the forefront of the minds of the writers of the New Testament all the time, and in the teaching of Yeshua. The teaching of Yeshua was this message, repent, turn around, quit sinning, start doing good. He, he could have quoted these. He, he could quote these. This is the gospel right here. The warning of Yeshua was, this generation is headed for disaster. There's, there's going to be, this, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. We're going to be carried off. The city's going to be surrounded. There's prediction after prediction of the doom that hung over the generation. And the solution to the doom was, repent, turn around, quit sinning. And if you do, we learn in the New Testament, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Right. So, Isaiah in the New Testament, well, this is the New Testament in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who is full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. You drink diluted with water. Your drink is diluted with water. Wow, there you go. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares... I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. Now he's going to reverse everything that it said in 21 through 23. It says, I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as lie. I will remove your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors at the beginning. After that, you will be called city of righteousness, a faithful city. And Zion will be redeemed with justice. And it goes on, as, it, as the passage goes on, as you know, it goes on to describe the Messianic era. And in fact, we have this reversal happen right here. As it, uh, it says, you know, this city, the wicked city, she's like, a, she's, uh, she who was faithful is, has become a harlot. And then the Lord says, but the Lord will be avenged. And we get this reversal and it starts building towards the kingdom. Okay, that's Isaiah 1. I know. Quick run through Isaiah 1. When do you think this prophecy... Here's a question I had on chapter 1. Since I said it's out of chronological order, when would you place this prophecy? When, what, what would you, when do you think it, it happened? I'm, I put it in 722 B.C. Right? Why 722 B.C.? Because that's when Assyria came and carried away the north. And I think Isaiah is saying, hey, how much worse can it get? It can get worse. It, what happened up there will happen down here, can and will happen down here. And this is a theme that he picks up, as we've already seen. He's speaking about this, uh, this coming doom, this coming invasion. And Isaiah is looking at Assyria as the actor in these prophecies of doom that he keeps unleashing. He sees what's happened in the north. He sees that the kings of Israel are gone. The people of Israel are gone. 
Syria has deported the population. As it's, I have this on your sheet, the first quotation I put on your sheet over the top of this prophecy. The king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria. The sages look at this passage, and they, especially this, this ending verse where, where he says, I will restore your judges at first and your counselors at the beginning. They said, this, we're looking forward into the kingdom. Does that sound familiar to you? It should sound familiar. I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. That's from the daily prayers. We find that in the Amidah. Every day, every day we ask Hashem, so we say, bring back our judges as at first and our counselors as in the beginning and remove grief and groaning from us and reign over us. You alone, O Lord, with devotion and compassion. Make us righteous in, in judgment. Well, whether or not the collapse had happened already, or perhaps Isaiah chapter 1 is being written while Samaria is still under siege, since the siege lasted three years, we don't know. Uh, like a hut in a cucumber field. Uh, but in any case, uh, by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 10, we're definitely talking about an invasion of Judah, an Assyrian invasion of Judah, and the north has already fallen. So that's where we're going now. We're going to start in verse 5 of Isaiah 10. Everybody there? Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. What is that supposed to mean? Assyria is the rod of God's anger and the staff of his indignation. He regards Assyria as, as, the, as the stick with which he is going to discipline unruly, his unruly people. My father says that when he misbehaved, his mother would send him out to get a stick. You know, He would have to go and select a stick to be used as a switch. And the rule was if, if it broke... <laughs> He would have to go get another. <laughs> so that's the idea here is the Assyria is a switch in the hand of God. This woe is, is not against Israel, but this woe is directed against Assyria. He says, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. This is, is Judah and Israel to capture booty, to seize plunder. Remember, remember uh, Isaiah's portentous uh, child that was named um, Swift to the Plunder and uh, to the Booty. This is the same words here. To capture the booty, to seize the plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is... Its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Carchemish is where Assyria uh, had their decisive, uh, decisive battle that made them the world power of, uh, of Isaiah's day. Or Hamat, like Arpad, or Samaria, like Damascus. So you're saying, so the Assyrians are saying, you name a major city, we've already taken one like it, as powerful as it. So Samaria, uh, like Damascus, 
as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So you see, Samaria has already fallen. And now the attention of Assyria is turning to Judah and Jerusalem. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, this this, uh, king of Assyria will say, no, the Lord will say, the Lord will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. I have understanding. I've removed the boundaries of peoples, plundered their treasures like a mighty man. I brought down their inhabitants. My hand reached to the riches of the people, of the peoples like a nest as one gathers abandoned eggs. I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Now, now the Lord responds to the king of Assyria in this imaginary dialogue that Isaiah is giving us. And you have to think, where is Isaiah giving us this? You know, where, where are we hearing this? We're probably hearing this in the gates of Jerusalem. Isaiah would be, you know, have a crowd around him and he'd be doing a little show, basically. You know, this is what the prophets, they were entertainers. He'd be doing a little show here for everybody, maybe even making the voices, you know, uh, of these, um, <laughs> the king of Assyria says, right? So the Lord responds to the king of Assyria. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops it? Is the saw to exalt over the one who wields it? That would be like a club, Wielding those who lift it. The club wielding those who lift it. The tail wagging the dog. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. Pay attention to that prophecy. Because we'll come back to that. We'll see this in the future. He will send a wasting disease among his Stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and his fruitful garden, both soul and body. It will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. Who's it, what, what does he mean, the trees of his forest? It's his army. Right. So the, the forest of Assyria that we're talking about here is the army that the king of Assyria has brought to seize Samaria and is using to, to lay siege to Samaria. And, and down, meanwhile, down in Judah, Isaiah is offering these prophecies. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel... And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Do you remember King Ahaz last week? Who did he rely upon? Not Hashem, but Assyria. Okay. So that's not going to happen again. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Do you remember the name of Isaiah's other son? Sher Yashuv, a remnant will return. 
So we've seen both of his son's names embedded in this prophecy uh, in, in chapter 10. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. A complete destruction, one that is decreed. The Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. All right, so I believe in what we're speaking of here in this remnant passage is not Judah, but Israel. It says, a remnant of Israel, the house of Jacob. Overflowing destruction is decreed. Now he switches to speak of Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts you up and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a little while, my indignation will be spent, my anger directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. His staff will be over the sea. He will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. Remember, and this is the crossing of the sea. So it will be in that day his burden will be removed from your shoulders, his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now we're going to watch, watch the armies of Assyria advance from the north, advance from Samaria, advancing from Israel. They're going south with each of these locations on their way to lay siege to Jerusalem. It's fascinating for for, for um, biblical geographers like my brother to read this description. He has come against Ayat. He has passed through Migron. At Mikmash, he deposited his baggage. This is the army of Assyria. They have gone through the pass saying, Giba will be our lodging place. Rama is terrified and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Lysha, and wretched Anatote. Madmina has fled. The inhabitants of Gabim have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob, and he shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Interesting about this advance is it's all in Isaiah's head. It never actually happened. Isaiah was talking about, you know, we're talking about the siege of Samaria and the Assyrians coming down to attack Jerusalem. This is, this is the route they would follow. Boom, boom, boom. It didn't actually happen for 20 years. Some 20 years later. And they didn't come this way. They came up, uh, they, they came up through the Philistine plains when they came. So this is a hype. What I'm saying is this is a hypothetical siege that he has in mind here. Uh, it goes on. It says, "Behold, the Lord God of, ho- of hosts. When this army, this army has now pulled up and around, uh, around Jerusalem. Here's the prophecy: the Lord God of hosts will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down. Those who are lofty will be abased. Those, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest." That's the whole army with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Lebanon being, of course, the forests. The forests of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. 
Yes. That's not temple talk? Oh, it is temple oh, talk. Oh, okay, all right. Right. Okay, I'm just telling you literally what it means. Here's how the sages read this. First of all, when it says, Lebanon will fall by the mighty one, uh, you know the story of how Yochanan ben Zakkai escaped from Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem in the days of the apostles. He escaped from Jerusalem in a coffin. His disciples carried him out in a coffin, and then he surrendered to Vespasian. And he greeted, he saluted Vespasian as emperor. Vespasian said, I should have you put to death. I'm not the emperor, I'm a general. He says, oh, no, 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 no. It says in the prophet Isaiah that Lebanon will fall by a mighty one. But literally, what does that mean? Literally, uh, it's Hashem is, the Lord is the mighty one, and Lebanon is this Assyrian army. I mean, it's not, I mean, that's not, of course, that's figurative, but you understand. That's how Isaiah is using the symbolism. Yochanan ben Zakkai used the symbolism totally differently. To Yochanan ben Zakkai, Lebanon refers to the temple because it was made with cedars of Lebanon. And, the, and Lebanon falls to a mighty one. He says, well, that must be you, Vespasian, because you're the one who's uh, the general over the siege. And so you must be a mighty one. You must be emperor. Well, he said, you know, you're crazy. You should be put to death. And that same day, the message came that um, Nero was dead and Vespasian's troops started to, to uh, the rally to have him take uh, the throne, to take the throne of Rome, right? Something like that. Or it was, I'm sure it was beyond Nero was dead. It must have been Galba and Vitellius were at war with one another, or Otho was dead, or something like that. You know, I don't know. I forget. Those three, those three emperors in between. Anyway, Vespasian does end up as emperor. That's how Yochanan ben Zakkai interpreted the passage. Well, how about this? How about listen to this one from Lamentations Rabbah? At the time of his coming, the temple was destroyed. This is at the time of the Messiah's coming, the temple was destroyed, and the, at the time of his returning, it will be rebuilt. Rabbi Abun said, This is stated explicitly in Isaiah, where it says, Lebanon will fall by the mighty one, which is followed immediately by the words, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So the sages use this in the Midrash to say that, Look, the Messiah was born before the second temple was destroyed, or on the day the second temple was destroyed, the Messiah was born. And when he appears, he'll rebuild it. So his, uh, his, his birth brought the end of the temple, and his coming, his appearance will bring the rebuilding of the temple. I'm only showing you both of these. I'm showing you both of these to illustrate a point. Talk to the rabbis. They don't exactly use Isaiah literally. I mean, that's not what that prophecy meant. That's not what Yochanan ben Zakkai understood it to mean, and not what Rabbi Abun understood it to mean. However, Yochanan ben Zakkai turned out to be correct. Yeah? And Rabbi Abun, he doesn't even know it as he says it, but he's correct. Because the Messiah came at, in, in the Second Temple era, predicted its destruction, and will come again, restore the house of God. Before anyone says anything about the New Testament writers taking prophecies from Isaiah and using them out of context, 
You have to look at the the way that Judaism already has established the use of these prophecies. Does that make sense to you? Am I communicating or am I just talking? Okay, I'll try. I did. I, yeah, I didn't feel good about that. Um, try it from this angle. A couple years ago, we did a book called. We studied a book in this room called 26 Reasons Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. One of the common reasons that came up, I mean, probably about 20 of the 26, I don't know, ended up being passages from the New Testament. The author of the book would say, well, look, that's, let's look, you know, where the New Testament was quoting the Old Testament. They'd look it up and say, oh, look, that's not what that means at all. Like the one we looked at last week, the virgin birth, the virgin who conceives and gives birth. And so I pointed out that, yeah, that you could do that. You could play that game. But if you were to play that game of, well, that's not literally what that means, you would also uh, discredit all of rabbinic literature. All of it would fall on that same basis. Because the New Testament uses the same principles of exegesis that the sages used. The same hermeneutics that the sages used. So to say that the New Testament is faulty because of poor, because of poor exegesis, is to cut off the limb you're sitting on, if you're a rabbi. Likewise, to say that the rabbis are should be ignored for traditions of men because of their methods of exegesis is to cut off the limb you're sitting on if you're a believer in the New Testament. <laughs> they're, kind of, they're stuck together. <laughs> That's my point. That's why I'm showing you that. I just wanted you to see two examples. There's many more, of course, but two examples of how the sages misuse the text of Isaiah. There we said it. To make their point. And yet the point is still valid. We're not done. Oh, I know it's a lot of text tonight, isn't it? But we're not done. We're almost done. But we're not done. We're going to go on and, and tackle 11 as well. Chapter 11 of Isaiah is... One of the most messianic prophecies in the whole Bible. It's one of it's the Messiah prophecy. This is the passage we study on the last day of Passover, on the day of the Messiah banquet. Here's how it goes. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Remember we were just talking about trees? Just, we were just talking about trees and about kings being like big, tall trees and, and, and their armies being like a forest. And then, then Hashem was, was being a lumberjack and he was cutting down the forest of the Assyrians. Whack, 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 right? Now we read the same metaphor, carrying the same metaphor over into chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And here I think stem of Jesse, I'd like to, I'd like to change the translation to stump. The idea of a, the stump of Jesse. See, the house of Jesse, the family of Jesse, that's David's father. Uh, so th- we're talking about the Davidic dynasty, like a tree. But like a tree that's been cut off, has been cut down. And just like a tree that's been cut off, if you've ever seen, you ever cut down a tree, what happens is these shoots start coming up along the, the sides, you know, because the tree's still alive, that root system is still alive. So the idea is that Isaiah is saying, it's like, okay, you know, look, the Davidic monarchy might not be all that it used to be. I mean, whether he's projecting into the future prophetically, which I believe he's definitely doing, or in his own mind, maybe he's thinking of King Ahaz. 
you know, uh, King Ahaz, who's uh, sold out to Assyria and and uh, has brought all this idolatry. And I don't know, maybe he's thinking of King Hezekiah, who is the shoot. Maybe Hezekiah is the shoot he has in mind that is springing up. But in any case, the sages say, this is King Messiah. We're talking about King Messiah. A shoot will spring up and a branch from his roots and will bear fruit. A branch from his roots is Netzer. That's Netzer. And the spirit of Hashem will rest upon him. Remember John the Immerser said he knew it was him because he saw the one, the, the one on whom the spirit came down and rested. The sages look at the, connect this passage with the passage in Genesis that says the spirit of the Lord uh, was hovering over the waters. And they say, see, this is the spirit of Messiah. As it says, the spirit of Hashem shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It's powerful. You can't think too literally here. We're obviously not dealing with literal figures here and cudgels coming out of his mouth or or as if he has a breath of smog the dragon or something like that. But rather, what we're speaking of is he, with a word, he'll speak a word, and it'll be done. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And then will be the kingdom. And here's the prophecy of the kingdom. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. A cow and a bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. And he will stand as a signal for the peoples. This is a key verse. He will stand as a signal for the peoples. We'll come back to that. And his resting place will be glorious. That is Israel, Jerusalem. And now you get to see the redemption. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Patros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations. This is the same thing as it said earlier, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones from Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What are we seeing here? The ingathering. Most repeated prophecy in the Bible, the ingathering of the exiles of Israel, the ingathering of the Jewish people. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not harass Ephraim. (laughs) See how provincial we are. I mean, the concern here. We're looking ahead into the future. But in Isaiah's day, the reality was a broken kingdom. Uh, uh, You know, the, the north versus the south. Samaria versus Jerusalem, Pekah versus Ahaz, Israel versus Judah. He says, but in that day, it's not going to be like that anymore. They're not going to be jealous of each other, Judah and Ephraim. Instead, they're going to work together. 
It's going to be awesome. They'll swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines of the West. Together, they'll plunder the sons of the East. They'll possess Edom and Moab and all the neighbors. The sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. He will wave his hand over the river, the Euphrates. And with his scorching wind, he will strike it into seven streams and make the men walk over dry shot. So you see a splitting of the sea happening as the exiles who have been carried off into Assyria in Isaiah's day are being freed. They're coming back. They're coming back from, the, from Mesopotamia. They're crossing the Euphrates. God's dividing the Euphrates River so they can walk across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day they came up out of the land of Egypt. So he's predicting, he's predicting the ingathering of exiles from, from this Assyrian exile. Then you will say on that day, here's the song, the new song, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Remember what, what happened after the, the crossing of the Red Sea? Yeah, they sang a song. So Isaiah gives us a song. He says, then, there'll be, then you'll sing this song. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Although you're angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. You know, you should recognize some of these words, huh? Here's, this is what we say every, every, every week at Havdalah. We say this at the end of the Sabbath every week. Or how about this one? Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the wells of salvation. These are, th- th- these are verses from the, the redemption song, the song, of a, the song that's going to be sung in the, in, the, in the day of the great redemption. And in that day, you'll say, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name and make his deeds known among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he's done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. O cry aloud, shout for joy, inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Wow. Done. Well, not done with the class. Don't get your hopes up. Just getting started, really, on that. No, done with the text we're going to read tonight. I know it was a lot of text, but we had to cover it. Maybe it was a bad idea to try to do chapter 1 and 10 through 12 all at once. And we're going to go back over this material we just looked at, and I'm going to show you some stuff from the New Testament. That's the plan. It's pretty simple. However, first I'm going to show you some stuff that's not in the New Testament. Do you remember this verse that we started with, way back in Isaiah 1, where he says, Hashem rebukes the nation, he says, An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. In the 2nd century, maybe the 3rd century, there's a Gospel of Matthew written called Pseudo-Matthew. I mean, <laughs> they didn't call it Pseudo-Matthew. <laughs> That's what scholars call it. <laughs> but um, it's a fake Gospel. In other words, a fake Gospel of Matthew that cites this verse. Here's the passage. The most blessed Mary went forth out of the cave and entering a stable placed the child in the stall and the ox and the donkey adored him. Then was fulfilled that which was said by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The ox knoweth his owner, and the donkey his master's crib. The very animals, therefore, the ox and the donkey, having him in their midst, incessantly adored him. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? See, this text became very influential in the church. And little manger scenes (laughs) all around the world today still remember 
pseudo-Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah 1. So that goes in the category of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah not in the New Testament. Because, well, like if this class was about how Isaiah's not used in the... Never mind. How about another one like that? Barnabas. Barnabas? Uh, the Epistle of Barnabas? Someday it would be fun to do a study on the Epistle of Barnabas, I suppose. Some really interesting material in there. The Epistle of Barnabas is a is is not a it's it's a it's a pseudo epistle. wasn't written by Barnabas. It was written in the second century, early second century Christian epistle, uh, anti Jewish, anti Torah, uh, replacement theology uh, epistle. It was ba- but it was the problem with Barnabas was how influential it was. It was accepted. It was one of the earliest forgeries to enter the Christian world. And it was accepted almost universally for a long time. So it's highly influential in bringing about the separation of, of uh, the church from the Jewish people. And here's a passage from Barnabas. It says, For he hath revealed to us by all the prophets that he needs neither sacrifices nor burnt offerings nor oblations, saying thus, what is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings, desire not the fat of lambs, the blood of bulls, goats, not when ye come to appear before me. For who hath required these things at your hands? Tread no more my courts, not though ye bring me, that, not, not though ye bring with you fine flour, incense is a vain abomination unto me, your new moons and Sabbaths I cannot endure. And now here's Barnabas' interpretation. He has therefore abolished these things, that the new law of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is without the yoke of necessity, might have a human oblation, or human sacrifice. That is actually a bit more honest translation there. as a human sacrifice. that's the conventional Christian interpretation of Isaiah 1, is that God always hated the sacrifice, he hated the temple, couldn't stand the Sabbath, he was sick of the new moons and the festivals and all that sort of thing, couldn't stand any of that. uh, uh, And and he's just trying to get the people to quit quit doing all that legalism and all that laws and that sort of thing that I told you to do and I told you I'd put you to death and drive you out of your nation if you didn't do. (laughs) <laughs> it makes God pretty, pretty capricious, that interpretation. It's, it's really shallow. It makes God capricious, changing his mind all the time. Not very trustworthy. Uh, come on, I mean, Isaiah is not a, he, he's not a replacement theology guy. You know, he's not a Christian. He's not, he's not giving us prophecies saying, quit keeping the Sabbath. I mean, <laughs> that's not, that's not, that was not his message. It wasn't, quit keeping the, the holy days. What could repentance mean for him but to do that? Right, yeah, right. So, well, and, you know, he, he spelled it out really clearly what he had in mind for repentance. And he said, um, uh, Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Because those things were not being done, because of that, the festivals, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the rituals, the ceremonies were an abomination to Hashem. I, I've taught this material a million times. I used to put it this way, I say, okay, so imagine there's a you know a husband and wife. The husband dutifully brings his wife 
flowers every day. It's very nice. It's a ritual he has, a little ceremony. But she knows he's cheating on him. She, she knows that he's, he's cheating on her. Okay? So she knows he's cheating on her, and he knows that she knows. And yet, shows up with the flowers every day. How does the wife feel about these flowers? You know, this, is, this is kind of like Hashem in regard to the Sabbath, the festival. These are, these are gestures of, of Israel's devotion to his Torah. But Hashem knows better. You're not devoted to my Torah. <laughs> You're not living in obedience. One more thing from Isaiah chapter 1. Well, at least one more thing from Isaiah chapter 1. The verse that says, How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. This is also not in the New Testament, but this was an apostolic teaching. In the days of the apostles, James, the brother of the master, was called James the Righteous. They called him Hatzadik, the righteous. They also called him Tzedakah, which is righteousness. In doing this, they were able to find him in the book of Isaiah, find his name. When we read the passage that says, how, faith, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her. The early believers read this to mean, James the righteous once lodged in her, but now murderers. And they took it as a prophecy of the murder of James, uh, who was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple. Just an, that's just an interesting historical aside. But again, it shows how the early believers utilized the text of Isaiah as if it was speaking directly about them and their times, which it was, because they, they were the generation that saw the Messiah. Blessed are your eyes because they see what... Because they see what many prophets and holy men long to see, and your ears hear what many prophets and holy men long to hear, but did not. We're going to go to Romans, Romans chapter 9. We were just here last week. Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly, and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of hosts had left us posterity, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So we had two different passages from Isaiah. We heard Isaiah 10, 22, and 23 quoted, and then Isaiah 1, verse 9. What is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the days of, this, of the Assyrian invasion? Is he talking about the deportation of the northern tribes? Is he talking about the threat of, uh, of, uh, of Assyrian aggression against Judah? No, not at all. In this context, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about, he's trying to explain the rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah by the majority of the Jewish people in his day. Right? And this is how this is how he's and, and he's reasoning through, and so he's reapplying these texts and saying, Well, you know, Isaiah says only a remnant, only a remnant is going to be saved. Isaiah says that only a remnant will return out of even though 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 your your people are as vast as as the, as the sea, only a remnant will survive. And Isaiah says we would have been left if, if we didn't have some survivors, we would have left be, been left like Sodom, like Gomorrah. Is this a fair use, a fair reapplication of Isaiah? I think so. 
Yeah, I, I think it is because what Paul was standing on the edge of, Paul and all the apostles, was the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, the deportation of the Jewish people from Judea. All of that happened within that generation. Yeshua had been here saying, repent. If you don't, this will happen. Most did not. Paul says only a remnant is going to survive. And that's what happened. Uh, just as it was in the days of Isaiah. Uh, it came to that. It came to a foreign power invading and carrying the Jewish people into captivity. And, and, uh, and a great holocaust took place in those years. Between, between the years 70 and 135, uh, there were three Jewish wars. We always talk about the first one. But there were three Roman actions against the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands died. Let's go on to talk about more interesting things. Matthew chapter 2. Oh, this is my favorite, or one of my favorites. I think it's great. This this is one of those ones the anti-missionaries love to bring up, too. So he came and lived in a city that was called Nazareth. This is Joseph, the father of Yeshua, says. He came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And of course, the big problem is that nowhere in the prophets does it say he shall be called a Nazarene. You can search one end to the other, and it never says he shall be called a Nazarene. And, uh, you know, so we speak of Jesus the Nazarene. (laughs) Why does Jesus have long hair in every picture? Every picture you ever see of Jesus, he has long hair. Because people don't know the difference between a Nazarite and a Nazarene. Yeah, a Nazarite is the guy who doesn't cut his hair. In Hebrew, these two words look nothing alike. They both start with the letter nun. But that's about as far as it goes. Uh, He shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein explains that this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, where it says, a branch will come out of the stump of Jesse. The word for branch is Netzer. And the name of Nazareth was Netzeret, branch town, named after that prophecy. It was, it, my theory, anyway, is that it was named after that prophecy, that it was settled by a Davidic uh, clan, perhaps a Davidic clan that was evacuating the area around Bethlehem, uh, during the Herodian era. Would you say it was Netzer? Netzer. Netzer. So Nazareth, Netzeret, uh, it relates to this prophecy. He shall be called a, someone from, uh, he shall be called a Netzer. And we see, well, there is a prophecy about that. It doesn't, it doesn't say, and he shall be called a Netzer. It says, a Netzer shall spring forth. But that's the idea. Nazareth. You know, we're all called Notzerim. That's the Hebrew word for Christian to this day. Notzrim. It means uh, na- Nazarenes. That's the name of our sect. Named after this prophecy from Isaiah 11. It's pretty cool. All right, how about this? Well, we can skip the judge. I was going to bring you to the judge, you know, where it says he will not judge by the seeing of his eyes or decide by the hearing of his ears. I was going to show you a passage in John where he says that much. He doesn't directly quote it. But he definitely has it in mind when he says he didn't need anyone to tell him what was in a man's heart. Yeah, John 2.25. Let's go to the sword of his mouth, Thessalonians 2.8. Here Paul is describing the world deceiver, the Antichrist. He says in, in 
of Second Thessalonians, and he says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders. I gave you several passages from Revelation where it speaks of the sword that comes out of the mouth of Messiah. This is all in reference to that. This, these all go back to that passage in Isaiah, though, where it says, by the breath of his lips, he will destroy the wicked. Um, this is in reference to Gog and Magog and the battle with Gog and Magog. The Messiah will speak the word. A weapon is coming out of his mouth. It's the word of Messiah, the authority of Messiah. Weapons of mass destruction. There will be a time when the armies of the world will surround Jerusalem, according to the prophet uh, Zechariah. The Messiah will stand on the Mount of Olives and he'll speak a word. The sword of his mouth will smite these armies. He'll say a single word. He'll say, moat. He'll die. Well, that's, that's the sword of his mouth. Back to Romans. Romans 15. And we're almost done. We're just minutes away from being done. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. That's just a straight quote. That's a straight up quote. And he's not using it out of context whatsoever. That's exactly what it says. And he's using it to that exact purpose. You see, Paul is trying to, he's struggling uh, as he writes the, his epistle to, to the, Roman, uh, the Roman believer. And he's, you know, the epistle to the Romans, you've got two kinds of readers, actually three. Three readers, three readers of his epistle. There's Jews, Jewish believers. Uh, there's proselytes, Gentiles who used to be Gentiles, but now are Jewish, who are reading his epistle. And there's these Gentiles who aren't Jewish or becoming Jewish, or God-fearers in God-fearing believers. And so Paul's epistle to the Romans is making the argument, is making the case that, hey, you know what? It's, this is what the prophets say. Messiah will come and the Gentiles will flock to him. So we shouldn't be so surprised, huh, perhaps, that the Gentiles are flocking into Judaism at this point. You know, because this was prophesied. So that's exactly what Paul is saying here. And he's using the prophecy exactly as it's, you know, it's a literal interpretation. We could look at another interesting passage. Let's do that. Let's, um, let's go over to Matthew 25. I think Yeshua alludes to the passage. The same verse that Paul just used. But not in such a friendly manner. When he says in Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. So, in his interpretation, being drawn to the Son of Man is being drawn for judgment. Back a little further, I'll show you another. This is, we're almost done, we're just moments from being done. Chapter 24, verse 30. You've heard this one before. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Heard that one before. But the word sign of the Son of Man throws us off, because, uh, well, that sign that's coming from the Greek, Simon, but Simon is, uh, is the Greek word that the Septuagint uses to translate ness. Ness. 
is uh, uh, what Isaiah said. He will lift up a standard for the nations, a ness. It's really easy, a real easy concept to understand. Back in the day, when you needed to rally an army quickly from the local villages, you know, you didn't have a civil defense siren or anything like that. Or, uh, so, so you just go put up a big pole, stand up a pole up on the hilltop. Everybody sees the big pole up on the hilltop. Maybe it has some standards flying off of it, but a pole will do. Then you know, oh, we're being rallied, we're being summoned, and army would come together. That was the nest. That's how it worked in the days of Isaiah. So Isaiah frequently makes reference of, he will lift up a nest for the nations. That's to gather the nations. Or he will, he, he will hold up a nest. Uh, this is the sign of the Son of Man. Nest also means miracle. Isn't that interesting? The word also means miracle. Same word. When Moses made the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, he lifted it up on a nest. Yeshua refers to that in John chapter 3. He says, uh, just as the serpent was lifted up on a ness, so the uh, Son of Man must be lifted up. The same word, however, ness, also is translated into Greek, as I was saying, as simon, which is sign in this passage. When Yeshua actually says, the sign of the Son of Man, we should, we should read it as the ness of the Son of Man, will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So whatever Isaiah had in mind when he said, he will lift up a a nest, he will lift up a a standard, and the the nations will gather to him, this is the same thing that Yeshua is referring to the same passage. That's a very obscure example of Isaiah in the New Testament. Very obscure. But now you know, right? And it makes total sense to you. All right. Doesn't it? Don't know what I'm talking about, do you? I feel like I'm. we have a failure to communicate tonight. One more. We don't even have to look these up. You know how many times the show speaks of, he's speaking with the woman at the well, he's speaking of the water of life, living water, right? I give you the water to drink, the, the water of eternal life. Or in John chapter 7, at the ceremony of the water libation, the people would be singing, with great joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation as, as they're pouring out the water over the altar. And the master says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink and rivers of living water will flow from within his being. Right? We, we, know, this, we know this story. All of these are, all of these passages, all of these references seem to be hinting back towards Isaiah chapter 12, and that passage that we read, with great joy you shall draw water. That's why they called it the house of the water drawing. When they poured out the water over the, over the altar, it's named after this passage, with great joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And the power of that, from the wells ha-yeshua, from the wells of salvation, the house of the water drawing, it says in Ruth Rabbah, why is it called the festival of water drawing? Because those who attended the ceremony uh, drew inspiration from the Holy Spirit. As it says in Isaiah 12, 3, therefore you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And Yeshua says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. And then John adds a little comment on the gospel there in John chapter 7. 
And he says, he said this regarding the Spirit. He said this regarding the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Ruth Rabbah said it regarding.